the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If one of the founding fathers could uh, somehow be uh, transported back in uh, time or forward in time, I guess, and and could suddenly find themselves not in the mid-1700s, but here now in, in 2012, and could pick up a newspaper and read what's going on in the body politic in America today, uh, spend some time listening to a debate on the floor of the House, uh, or, um, or read some of the executive powers uh, and orders that have been uh, exercised by the president, do, do you think? Do you think that um, the founding fathers would recognize this country and say, "Oh yeah, that's the America that I helped create"? Well, as our guest today, uh, Dr. Thomas Kidd, is suggesting, no, the answer is no, no, probably not at all. He's author a new book called "Patrick Henry: First Among Patriots," and again, the new book published by Basic Books and available bookstores throughout the Bay Area. One or two that still exist, but most notably, of course, through Amazon.com. Yeah, I find it interesting that we look at some of these men who, uh, for whom these beliefs was not just something that they were willing to enunciate uh, and go public on. These were beliefs that they held so closely, so dearly that they were willing to die for them. And yet it seems as if we have very easily, uh, through fiat and uh, bad legislation, have, have almost whittled away the bulk of a lot of the the real foundation, I'm going to say, uh, Dr. Kidd, of what America was. Well, that's right. And I think that someone like Henry, uh, the reason why I call him the first among patriots is because he was so uh, aware of the threats to liberty. Uh, and so he is always seems to be first in line uh, to decry uh, British encroachments against American Liberty, And so he's already doing this even before the revolutionary crisis begins. There's a trial in 1763 uh, where he, the, the British have overturned a perfectly reasonable Virginia law. And he says, well, if the king will do this, he, he's degenerating into a tyrant. <laughs> people, as is common with, with Henry's uh, major speeches, people start muttering, uh, treason, sir, treason, <laughs> you know. And, but he's willing to, to risk being uh, arrested. Uh, right at the beginning of the revolution in, in Virginia, he becomes the commander-in-chief of Virginia's armed forces in George Washington's absence. Uh, these are people who are very much willing to lay their lives on the line uh, in the name of American liberty. And I, I think that we've all of us, I think, have become uh, too complacent about this today. When you look at things like the the Patriot Act... Uh, where we've essentially now said that no, you're no longer compelled to get a a, a federal judge to issue a, a warrant in order to engage in eavesdropping. And then, most recently, this passage here in signature by the president over the New Year's holiday that allows, effectively, the declaration of uh, the United States and its territories to be declared a battlefield. And as such, the president can then dispatch the United States military uh, to go out and arrest residents, aliens, or U.S. citizens 
uh, with the charge that they've engaged in some act of terrorism or the intent to uh, engage in terrorism and effectively lock them up without the ability of trial, jury, a judge, uh, an attorney, even a telephone call home to mother. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I, I find this to be so out of line. I mean, this is the kind of stuff to which, I mean, wouldn't somebody like Patrick Henry take a glove off and, and slap somebody in the face over something like this? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he would. And this is why they were calling him for, among other things, very clear rights to, uh, to trial, uh, jury trial, and, and so forth. And, and, and even with that, Henry thought that if you give a national government uh, the kind of power that is given under the Constitution, that all it takes is getting a president, uh, getting people in Congress, getting judges who are willing to act out of the accord of the, of the original intent of the Constitution, and they can corrupt it, uh, and their study of the, the past, the classical antiquity, always told them that this kind of militarization of the state, becoming a, a more police-oriented state, especially from the top down, uh, was the way that liberty began to go away. Yeah, what's curious about this is the fact that we're, we're dealing with men who, who knew what it was like to live under the impression of a monarchy. So they had some point of comparison uh, this is something that perhaps that we don't hear in America. I mean, we, we've enjoyed, uh, you know, several hundred years now of freedom and liberties, unprecedented uh, across the planet in many respects. And yet, because of the fact that we have no point of comparison and have failed, as you suggest, Dr. Kidd, to really engage in that study of the past is what perhaps puts us at greatest risk, wouldn't it? I think so. And I, and I think when I teach my uh, students about the anti-federalists, and about Henry in particular, I think it's, I find it's hard for them to even take what he says seriously because we have been taught that the Constitution almost, uh, you know, runs by itself without any kind of monitoring by the people and so forth. And so when, and so when Henry says uh, that he thinks the office of president is dangerous, he says, uh, he says, people say that this Constitution is, this is what he says at the ratifying convention, people say that this Constitution is so lovely, but to me it seems ugly. It has a strange squinting. He says it squints towards monarchy. <laughs> so, you know, he says you're 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 president. Call him a president, but he may easily become king. And Americans, I think, today say, "Oh, that could never happen." But what is this? You know, these uh, exercises of of uh, kind of aggressive executive power over American citizens. I mean, what is that like? Uh, uh, besides monarchy, uh, and and so that you know we can call it a president or monarch, but uh, someone who's given that kind of power can easily abuse it. Well, exactly so. And I mean, for example, there was some debate here. Unfortunately, it didn't get quite as spirited as I wished it had um, in the revelation. I think the most Americans were completely ignorant of that as much as the United States Congress has passed laws and regulations with regard to such things as insider trading, uh, they took caution and care to exempt themselves from such legislation. And so the act that, for example, uh, the chef um, helping here, um, Martha Stewart, Martha Stewart, uh, her, her action in selling shares of a company that she had interest in uh, on the cusp of some changes that would have affected the price effectively to preserve her 
financial interest in the company, uh, that action that cost her $90,000 penalty, uh, plus time in jail and three years under probation, uh, the very same action conducted by a member of the United States Congress brings no reprisals, no penalties, nothing at all, because they've taken the time and care to exempt themselves from insider trading laws. Now, if that doesn't take on um, uh, monarch-style overtures and tones, uh, Dr. Kidd, I, I don't know what does, that, that the monarchy effectively passed all the rules and laws, but didn't have to live under the laws that they passed. You know, the, 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 uh, the old adage, don't do as I do, do as I say. Right, and, and you know, I think with Henry, his... Christian beliefs gave him a, a, such a moral clarity about the risks of this kind of power. And again, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he said, this Constitution will work fine, uh, except for the fact that we can't trust politicians' moral character. Mm. Uh, and he, he said, the depraved nature of man is well known. And so all it will take for this Constitution to allow uh, a, a turning away from the original intent is putting people in office who are willing uh, to abuse the power that the Constitution gives them. And to Patrick Henry, it was inexorable that that would happen under the American Constitution. Well, uh, you know, we, we've uh, we've considered him to be one of the key founding fathers. He perhaps is uh, also one of the uh, the key um, predictors uh, that exactly what he warned us about has come to pass. We'll come back to more of our conversation, turn a corner after an update on traffic. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Kidd to give us some insights on the, the spiritual beliefs of uh, Patrick Henry and, and most importantly, the, how the, the shaping of his political views uh, took place under the guidance of his spiritual and religious views. A look at Patrick Henry, first among patriots, the author of this new book, Dr. Thomas Kidd, our guest on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the most acclaimed founding fathers, Patrick Henry, the focus of our conversation this afternoon, first among patriots, and our guest is author Dr. Thomas Kidd. As we mentioned earlier on, um, a look at the amazing life of this man, who, oddly enough, in the very beginning, uh, was against the language of the United States Constitution, uh, considered a leader in the anti-federalist movement, uh, concerned that in some respects it would be granting the federal government government too much power. Boy, did he have a crystal ball to look at back then, or what? Now, the interesting thing, you, you made reference to his concern and acknowledgement over the depravity of man, that all of this would work out fine, provided that everybody that uh, heretofore from the founding of our nation would be good and moral and honorable and would think only, of course, uh, uh, about uh, what is best for the nation and not, uh, not approach any of this from um, purely self-serving uh, perspective. Of course, we know that uh, that has not happened, uh, that the depravity of man has uh, has influenced uh, the governance of this nation for uh, you know better part of uh, over 200 plus years now, and with all of that, um, concerns about where the nation is, is headed. Uh, talk to us a bit, if you would, Dr. Kidd, about the influence of Patrick Henry's spiritual life on his political life. Well, among the major founding fathers, he's the most uh, outspoken Christian. Uh, it's not that there are other uh, founders, of course, who are who are traditional Christians too, but he's 
I think, uh, increasingly outspoken about his faith over the course of his life. And uh, he is deeply influenced as a boy, as a teenager, by the Great Awakening in Virginia, which is a series of revivals in the 1740s and 50s. And his mother got involved with a, uh, a new revivalist congregation in Virginia. Uh, and she would take Patrick Henry, when he was a boy, to these meetings. And uh, I, I think that these uh, meetings about uh, the gospel and salvation through Christ really stuck uh, deeply with Henry and certainly uh, formed his own faith. Uh, but I think they also helped him to uh, develop as a speaker. The pastor uh, at these revival meetings was a man named Samuel Davies, and later on, Henry said that Davies was the greatest orator that he ever heard. And coming from someone like Henry, who by all, all accounts was the greatest uh, orator of the, the American Revolution, that's quite a compliment. Indeed so. Um, the role of faith in the founding of our nation, uh, you know, the the phrase the separation of church and state has been uttered so many times that I, w- I would suppose uh, a man like Patrick Henry would, would choke on those words. <laughs> Well, he went head-to-head with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the 1780s in Virginia uh, because Patrick Henry believed that Virginia and the other states, not the national government, but the states, should continue direct tax support for the churches. Uh, And this is uh, an opinion that was shared by about half of the major founders. Uh, George Washington and John Adams believed in direct tax support for churches by the states. Uh, but Virginia decided to go with full uh, disestablishment of the, of the churches, no direct tax support at all. But this was never a debate about pro-religion versus anti-religion. It was always a debate on, about on what basis that religion would thrive best. And I think that, that it's interesting to note that uh, Jefferson and Madison are supported in their effort to get the government completely out of the business of promoting a denomination. They're supported in that by uh, many evangelical Christians, including especially evangelical Baptists. The reason is is because the Baptists had fresh memories of being persecuted by the state church, and they thought that the government just messes up religion when it gets involved with it. So the concern here was the government's influence on religion. Not as we've seen it today, where there seems to be such a great degree of paranoia that at some level or another, the, the, the religion or religious beliefs might somehow influence the government. Absolutely. And, the, and the, the major founders would be perplexed at the way that secularists in particular interpret the idea of separation of church and state to mean the erasure of, of religion from American public life. One of the best examples of this is even Jefferson, who's the one who wrote this uh, phrase, wall of separation between church and state. He wrote that in 1802 to a group of evangelical Baptists in Connecticut. And the same weekend he sent that letter, he hosted a church service in the House of Representatives chambers with a Baptist preacher giving the sermon. <laughs> so that that phrase by Jefferson, that I understand at the time uh, he was not engaged in public office. Uh, this is a, a private letter that he wrote uh, that, again, it, it, to properly put that in, into context, was not a warning about keeping the church's, uh, church out of any government business, but instead the other way around. Well, the Baptists in Connecticut were bothered because Connecticut in 1802 still had an established state church, the Congregationalist Church, and they wanted Connecticut to stop supporting this one particular denomination, and Jefferson was sympathizing with them about that, and he said, well, look, we're glad that at least on the national level, 
Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, meaning that we'll never have an official national denomination. But it, two days later, Jefferson is hosting a church service in the House of Representatives chambers. So whatever separation of church and state means to Jefferson, the great separationist, it can include having church services in government buildings. Pulling all of this back full circle, uh, Dr. Kidd, you began your early remarks uh, about the value of some of the, the influences of our founding fathers, such as F- Patrick Henry, uh, by their study of the past. And they, they wanted to put in certain protections that would prevent a so-called repeat performance. Well, obviously, we have erred tremendously uh, in this, uh, you know, more recent generations of governance of our nation uh, in our failure to really properly study the past. That said, what do you think that we can learn of Patrick Henry, his life, his values, the positions that he that he held dear, that can be an important lesson to help us correct some of the incorrect path that our nation has been down recently. Well, I think that that Patrick Henry, if he was alive today, he would he would if he was in a bad mood, he would probably say, "I told you so." <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he would probably also say, "What what I was arguing for in 1788 when I spoke out against the Constitution." was not just assurances of the protection of liberty and economic uh, good order, uh, but actual structural limitations on power. And I think that when you look at an idea of, for instance, like a balanced budget amendment, which is not a perfect solution, but it is a structural limitation on Congress's power to keep spending. I think that Henry would probably say, yes, that's the sort of thing that I have in mind, is actually preventing uh, the government structurally from being able to do these sorts of things. And I think he would also remind us that, after all, we do have the power to vote people out when they do not do what the Constitution says uh, that they should do. So I think he would recommend that we take control of our power and the sovereignty of the people under the United States Constitution. Boy, if listeners in the Bay Area are tuned in, can I add some names to that list? Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, Pete Stark. I won't waste your time. <laughs> Dr. Kidd, I appreciate so much your time today. Thank you very much. A look at Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots. Again, the new book, newly published by Basic and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And its author has been our guest today, Dr. Thomas Kidd, again, Associate Professor of History at Baylor University and considered one of our nation's leading historians of the American Revolution. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is a nation that occupies headlines on an ever-increasing basis. In fact, one of the major trading partners with the United States, particularly for technology. We might be surprised to find out that almost anybody these days that calls a service center for information more than likely will have that telephone call answered in India. It also, to the San Francisco Bay Area, provides one of the largest numbers of folks coming to the United States to work in the technological field on HB1 visas. And yet, for as much as we know about the nation of India, it remains a continent of 1.2 million people shrouded in curiosity and mystery. Joining me today in studio is the president of Mission India, Dave Stravers. Dave, welcome to the conversation. Hey, it's great to be with you, Craig. India is an amazing continent. Uh, For anyone that has been there, it is a nation full of sights and sounds and everything from extreme poverty 
to extreme opulence, thinking of things like uh, the Taj Mahal, for example, and, and, and a nation that perhaps more than anything is changing more radically on a day-by-day basis than perhaps any other nation in the world. Why is that? Well, no one knows exactly why, but uh, certainly when India came into the international economy in the early 1990s, uh, that was part of the big social change that started happening in the country. And what we've noticed, those of us who have been traveling the last 30 years in India noticed that at the same time, the Holy Spirit was doing some remarkable things with the Indian people generally, who for centuries have been very resistant to almost any kind of gospel witness outside of just a few small pockets of Christians in India. And now, for the first time, are are open as they have never been open since the coming of Christ. So the explosion that we've seen there has not only been economic and technological, but most certainly spiritual. And it's interesting because it's a bit of a dichotomy. India is probably one of the most spiritual nations on earth, and yet not predisposed towards spiritual things much as we would think of it in a Christian context. Yes, Indian Indians are very spiritually minded. They're very sensitive to the invisible uh, powers around them in uh, in ways that many other Asians, in fact, and certainly Westerners are not. And actually, Indian believers, when they come to Christ, also uh, bring with them some just remarkable spiritual gifts. Uh, Indians know how to pray like no one else that I've ever met around the world. And so, um, actually, all Indians pray. Uh, people will tell you every Indian, well, maybe there's an exception here or there, but there's 175 million Muslims that do their prayers, and there's uh, almost 1 billion Hindus who pray every day to one god or another of the millions of gods that they claim. So when when the gospel comes to this place, you don't have to convince Indians that God is real. Uh, the question is, which god? Who's God, uh, and who's this Jesus that you're talking about? Let's speak to that point for a moment, Dave, because I can see, as many are familiar with, bringing the gospel into an area where there is a spiritual vacuum. For example, we saw a tremendous thrust into evangelism in places like the former Soviet Union, following the fall of the Iron Curtain, late 1980s, I think, Romania the first to fall, and then we know it kind of went like dominoes. Certainly China has been an interesting example of that, into which we can bring the good news of Christ into a spiritual vacuum. But here, you don't have a spiritual vacuum in India. You really have sort of this this mishmash, uh, claiming more than 330 million gods, and it isn't unusual to go to any community and find a Hindu temple there where there might be at least locally 10, 20, 30, 40 different gods. How challenging is that in terms of them bringing in the news of yet, in this case, another god from an Hindu perspective? Well, uh, actually, when it's one Indian witnessing to another Indian, it's not challenging at all. It's very easy at this point. Uh, that's one thing that, that, that God has been doing in India. Uh, someone will say, well, uh, they get to know a Christian, and they talk about their needs, and the Christian will say, well, we pray to Jesus, and the Indian will say, well, how do you do that? Uh, there's a genuine curiosity on the part of most Indians regarding that. And so prayer to Jesus actually is perhaps the number one evangelistic tool in India. Mm. There's constant power encounters. Now, there's not a spiritual vacuum, but there is great turmoil and I would even say despair, a kind of hopelessness because of uh, the 
you might say the theology or the beliefs that most Indians have grown up with regarding uh, just uh, the hopelessness of 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 improving their lives somehow. You know, the teaching of karma and reincarnation are really those beliefs have to do with no change. And from a spiritual standpoint, too, isn't it a, a new concept from a Christian perspective in that the vast majority of gods that they wouldn't worship in India, there is a sense of doing so out of fear. Uh, in fact, I think the term kowtowing uh, has Indian roots in talking about a sense of wanting yeah. to appease the gods. So now when you interject into the conversation, this other god who isn't a God that comes to bring a message of fear, but rather a one that brings hope and forgiveness and personal relationship. Yeah. These have to be fairly mind-boggling new concepts then. It is mind-boggling for an Indian to say, this God, Jesus, who created the world, came to love us, to give himself up for us, to sacrifice himself for us, and to grant us a gift of eternal life. This is mind-boggling. It's too good to believe at first. And uh, praying to this living God and receiving answers, powerful answers to prayer to this living God who loves you, uh, this is very compelling. And that's why uh, there are literally millions of Indians coming to Christ every year right now. Where do you see some of the most significant growth? We've seen examples of cases where not just Western-style democracy, but Western-style economics comes in. People get a taste for technology and a better life, and so they sometimes get absorbed by a sense of consumerism. As much of that happened with the the economic changes in India? Uh, the vast majority of Indians, of course, are we would consider to be incredibly poor. Uh, 350 million who earn less than the absolute poverty line, $1.25 a day, and 900 million who earn less than $2.50 a day. If you earn $3 a day in India, you're considered middle class. So in a country where uh, the cost of food, uh, medicine, clothing, uh, it's less than here, but not that much less than here. So uh, many Indians will spend more than half of their daily income just on food, just to try to keep body and soul together. So uh, health needs... Uh, just basic physical needs are are incredibly intense for Indians. And then there is uh, the social needs. Um, how do I put this nicely? Uh, there's con- constant conflict in Indian families, in Indian communities. Conflict between castes, conflict between genders. There is extreme oppression of women. Uh, the plight of women in India... Uh, uh, we're only just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg with the stories we've heard about the rapes of women, uh, the infanticide of uh, newborn baby girls. Uh, young girls are not highly valued, and um, men beat their wives, and so many women actually resort to suicide because they live lives of, of quiet, hopeless despair. So the, the, the social needs and the physical needs are just so intense. When a Christian comes and says, there's a God who loves you, who cares about this, who can actually deliver you from this despair, uh, that is a very attractive message. Pretty fertile soil. So we're talking then of the economic and technological growth that's happened in India over the last 
decade and a half, two decades. Much of that then has really just touched the top tier, the top fifth of the population. So well, you're still right. looking at a nation that economically at its core yeah. is in, it remains in pretty dire straits. Yes, and you have uh, consumer price index inflation has been hovered around 10% for the last 10 years. Food inflation has hovered around 20% for the last 10 years. Per annum. Per annum. Wow. If you are in a high-tech industry and your salary is going up 20% per year, and many people's salaries do go up 20% per year, uh, you can you can deal with that. But if you are a common laborer, either in a rural area or pulling a cart in a city and earning $1.50 a day, and you've got three kids to support, it becomes impossible. Dave Stravers is with us today. He, of course, is the president of Mission India. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special in-studio guest today. He is the president of Mission India, Dave Stravers. Dave, just before the break, you made reference to some of the social turmoil that goes on in India. We've heard the stories about, for example, abuse against women, things of this sort. Uh, you talked too briefly about some of the, the sh- social friction, the economic friction, rather, within the country. What about the religious friction? Um, you make reference to the fact that not only is India one of the most populous Hindu nations, but also in the top perhaps five countries for a Muslim population. How much friction do we see taking place between those two religions along the continent? Yeah, some people claim that India is the top Muslim nation in the world with 175 million Muslims uh, rivaling Indonesia and Pakistan. So India has an incredibly huge Muslim population. That is, the Muslim-Hindu relations are the number one overriding political concern in India. And the new elections, the national elections that are coming up next May, uh, this is the one issue that is going to be at the top of everyone's mind. Uh, the, the, uh, the opposition leader, Narendra Modi, for the Indian Nationalist Party called the BJP, is very infamous for being a Muslim hater, uh, someone who believes that India is only for Hindus, And uh, the best thing that could happen is if all the Muslims would go to Pakistan and uh, all the Christians would go somewhere else. Uh, That's the official political stance of the BJP party. And this party could could possibly win that election. There has been a tremendous uh, overriding charges of corruption against the, the party in control, the Congress party, the secular party. And the economy has not been doing that well in the last year or two, and there have been other other problems that have caused some people to say the BJP could win this election. So Muslim-Hindu relations become very violent, people are killed, and it wouldn't surprise anyone to see hundreds or thousands of people killed on both sides of this conflict. If that change takes place or this friction continues leading up to the elections next spring, uh, into that powder keg, how, how challenging does it make Christian ministry then? Christians uh, will be victimized by either side, but especially by the Hindu nationalists. Uh, Christians are very worried about the BJP prospects. Uh, what will happen is... Uh, this The Hindu nationalists, uh, we might say their culture... Their teachings will give encouragement to all of the little anti-Christian groups that exist all over the country that would like to stop the growth of the church, that would like to intimidate workers and evangelists and converts. Five of the states of India already have anti-conversion laws, and uh, this could be a tremendous impetus for other states 
to implement anti-conversion laws that would would tend to put up obstacles to uh, either Hindus or Muslims receiving Christ. We, of course, historically have seen um, state-sponsored obstacles in other parts of the world, and yet in spite of all of that, the gospel continues to flourish. Do you see enough momentum in the growth of the church today at the grassroots level that in spite of maybe organized opposition up to and including institutionalized or government-sanctioned opposition, is there any way to stop that train from rolling down the tracks? Craig, nothing can stop that train. (laughs) I'm happy to tell you uh, the main reason why we have persecution of believers in India today is the extremely fast growth of the church and the reception to the gospel on the part of the general population. It's it's the minority, the political power brokers, the Hindu extremists, the religious establishment in, in the Hinduism. These are the people that are afraid of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're afraid because they see the openness now in the average uh, India household in the villages that once were so uh, hardened against any kind of uh, Christian work and now no longer are against it. So this is going to continue, and I don't think that uh, laws are, are going to stop this train from going. There's also a degree of pretty significant measurable transformation that you were mentioning to me off the air. For example, in the components of outreach of what Mission India does, uh, going in and addressing felt leads in an area, for example, such as literacy. Uh, is having a significant impact. And I would imagine anyone that comes into that environment that is able to produce significant, measurable transformation is is clearly not only going to gain some attention, but also set down some pretty solid roots. Yeah, Mission India has an adult literacy program that can bring a totally illiterate person to fifth grade uh, reading and writing and arithmetic level in one year. <laughs> we and, need to get you stateside. Yeah. We need to set up a couple of programs. It's, it's an amazing phenomenal. program. It works so well. It works well because the volunteer teachers come from local churches and they love the people they're working with. And we have a really good uh, system of accountability and reporting. And this program is in such high demand. We c- we just simply cannot respond to all of the of the requests we get from villages and communities who want this program. there In any given year, there are three or four times as many requests for the program as we are able to respond to. There's something unique, too, in what you're doing in terms of the presence of Mission India in country, and that is that there is a very strong partnership with the local church. I mean, this is, in fact, largely driven by nationals, is it not? Yes, we have no expatriates living in India. It's all national run, and in the country, it's entire 100% collaborative. So we're not planning Mission India churches or winning Mission India converts. We're helping local churches all over the country in every state uh, from literally more than a thousand different groups of people that we help with their ministries. Do you find that national cooperation creates stronger, healthier than local growth, more sustainable growth? Uh, There are so many little organizations in India who God has called to raised up to work in a little area, but they have no... They have no backing, they have no contacts outside their region or maybe even outside their city, and all they need is a little bit of help. Some training, some scriptures, some materials, uh, an organized program that, that works. And so this kind of cooperation is extremely powerful when you have uh, different groups coming together, bringing their skills and combining them to reach a local village or a local slum in a city. Uh, it works incredibly well. 
from a partnership standpoint, that, of course, raises a big question. When you're doing so much that's kind of the, the grassroots operation then, it always raises questions about, well, what of accountability? If I'm partnering, for example, with Mission India, how do I know that the dollars are actually going to make a difference? What kind of accountability is built in or a system of checks and balances? Yeah, we've been doing this uh, for quite a while, and our accountability reporting is a number one value for our staff and our partners in India. In fact, uh, one of the first things we teach to workers and their supervisors is to hold each other accountable, not only for the activity of the workers, but also for the objectives. So we know exactly how many people are enrolled in literacy. We know that last year 86% of them graduated and were able to pass that fifth grade exam. Uh, We know exactly what percent of them uh, became uh, Christians. We know exactly what percent their income went up, 56% increase in income last year. Uh, we track these all very carefully, and uh, we have staff all over the country that do this. So it's not just growth, it's sustained growth Yes, with the checks and balances so we can see the improvement that's what's happening nationally, not only in terms of the headcount, so to speak, mm-hmm. Uh, but also in terms, too, of the transformation side of what the ministry is doing. Yeah, we call it SROI. You know what ROI is. Mm-hmm. Every business knows what is so ROI is. This is spiritual this return is on investment. spiritual return on investment, like and we define what are your spiritual objectives, and we know what we invest in each uh, place, and we know what the spiritual return was. And it also helps you when you're evaluating your program, trying to improve it, when you're in value, evaluating the partner or the workers that you're training, you have a certain benchmark, a certain standard that you know is reasonable to expect. And, uh, and frankly, the Indian leaders of these groups love it. Uh, they discover uh, that their capacity for ministry is even greater than they thought mm-hmm. when they finish one of our programs. And certainly knowing that they've got the support and that there's a sense of accountability. You know, it's easier to yeah. stay on focus and on message yes. if you know that you have somebody, a higher authority, so to right. speak, to whom you have to report eventually. That's right. And very important, Craig, is that this is not an American-run ministry within India. This is an, an Indian-run, national-run. Uh, the Indian workers are the ones that set the tactics and the strategies that have designed the programs. And we give them a lot of help, a lot of assistance, but it's theirs. And uh, there's, no, there's no foreign face to this program. Uh, very important in India that this is an, uh, India, a program run by Indians for Indians. And at the end of the day, one that is transformational in nature, life-changing in a spiritual standpoint. And a fun, I think, way for people to get introduced to the work of Mission India. Um, on your website, which for the benefit of listeners is missionindia.org, you have something called My Passport to India. Uh, take a moment, just give us a quick snapshot of that, if you would, Dave, because I think it can take listeners on an exciting adventure that are either not too deeply familiar with what's going on in India today, the opportunities and the challenges, but then, too, the dynamic work that's being done with Mission India and your partners in country. Well, yeah, Craig, you you started off by saying India is a high-impact place to visit. You can actually visit India through our website. We have a number of uh, small video segments there that illustrate life in India as well as the programs of ministry in India. Right now, there's a new series called Lost in India. Uh, You can just log right on, and, and the series is designed for children. 
specifically, it was designed for uh, homeschool families, but we found that uh, parents uh, everywhere, they love to watch this program with their children. They're little little exercises and to-do things to go with the video series. You watch a series of eight videos, and you get introduced to the country, the culture, the people. Uh, there's a lot of humor in the program, and you also get to see what God is doing in a place where the name of Jesus is not known very well. The nation, as we said at the very get-go, is a paradox in some ways. There are curiosities at, at so many levels. There's a certain mystique and, I think, allure about India because of the culture, its history, the religions. Um, and, and into all of that, see the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ step in partnership with the local church. But again, uh, down through the years, the Mission India has been working there how many years now? Well, more than 30 years. More than 30 years. um, Has a demonstrated track record of providing long-term measurable transformation. Transformation not just at a community level in terms of addressing felt needs, such as the literacy program that we talked about a moment ago, but most importantly from a a mission gospel um, viewpoint, um, spiritual transformation. If you'd like to get more information about the work and ministry of Mission India, again, I'll point you to the website, missionindia.org. That's missionindia.org. And if you'd like to be able to literally travel to India without the hassle of airports and customs and all of that, and without even having to buy an airplane ticket, then my passport to India might be a great way to see an incredible India that you've never imagined. On the web at My Passport to India, on the website at Mission India. Org. Dave Stravers, thanks for dropping by and giving us an update. Thanks, Craig. It's great talking with you. Dave Stravers, president of Mission India. Again, details on the web at missionindia.org. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.